Hey everyone, it's Avi here. I hope you're all doing well and staying safe. This week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Nina Chandrasekharan. She's a pulmonary and critical care fellow working in Detroit, Michigan. She is currently working on the front lines fighting the COVID-19 pandemic. So in this episode, we talk about her experiences going through medical school, being an international medical graduate, and she talks about her experiences in residency and now in her second year of fellowship during the pandemic. She also provides tips for medical students, whether you're an international medical grad or not. She provides a lot of amazing tips, so I hope you guys really enjoy it. Hi, everyone. Today, I am super excited to be speaking to Dr. Nina Chandrasekharan. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, of course. I'm so glad you were able to have me on. Yeah, absolutely. I'm super excited. So I wanted to start this episode off with some fun segments that we like to do here on Brown Girl White Coat Pod. And the segment is called Highs and Lows. So basically, you share a high for the week and a low for the week, and then I'll share mine. Okay. All right. So I'm going to start with the low because it's a pretty big low. Actually, in that case, I'm going to start with a high. Okay. <laughs> One of the highs that I have for the week is I got to work with one of my favorite residents. Oh, yay. That's amazing. Oh, my gosh. And I'm sure you do a lot of teaching as a fellow. Yeah, we really do. And the residents really connect with you. Like as a fellow, you get to really like when you're on nights, you're on night call with them for 12 hours straight. So you really get to know like each other. And I was just so excited to work with this resident again. Oh, I'm so glad. That's exciting. (laughs) And but then the what's soon? pretty big, unfortunately. Oh, no. So COVID has come back. Yeah. I but saw your, I saw your reel on that actually. Yeah. So today alone in that from 7am, the pager was nonstop. And I'm like, is this March oh, 2020 or March 2021? It was like, yeah. facing on 15 liters, non-rebreather, DSAT and COVID-19 pneumonia. ICU consult next was like, patient high flow needs intubation and COVID-19 pneumonia. Next is like COVID-19 from the ED. It was nuts. And it was like nonstop. And then I had an ECMO consult today because that's the service that I'm on, the MICU ECMO. And yeah. it was a young person. Patient was in their 50s. I'm like, no, it's just so sad because, you know, I know we're trying to get everyone vaccinated as quickly as possible, but clearly the rollout isn't as fast as we need it to be to curb the number of cases. So it's just devastating. Honestly, I think this time around hit me the worst, like more really? I, all through 2020. I was fine. Even yeah. in the second surge in November, I was like, okay, but this one hit me the hardest because I looked at the IC list before I went in. They're so young, Avi, like wow. there's a 40 year old that passed last night. And it was, oh an God. Animal, unfortunately, but then there was like people, what if she wanted the vaccine or the patient wanted the vaccine, but couldn't get it because, you know, we're not giving them to 40 year olds right now. So it's kind of like a very unfortunate and like, it sucks, you know, there's, there's yeah. so much younger. We got constituted on a 20 something year old, like what? no way. Are a lot of these patients, like, do a lot of them have underlying medical conditions? Like despite their age, are they considered high risk because of other factors? Surprisingly around this time, not really. That's Not scary. Really. The one that we had an ECMO console in their 50s just had osteoarthritis. Like, and no way. I was like normal. I was like, okay. That's, I mean, that's definitely terrifying. What's like the weirdest part? Only in Detroit. And I think it starts yeah. in like the, and back in March 2020, when it started, Detroit was worse in New York to begin with. Then New York like skyrocketed. Yeah. I don't yeah. know if it's a telltale sign or what, but I've spoken to a bunch of friends like, you know, Risa and like on Siri. Yeah. People, they're saying that it's not, 
that bad yet. Like it's still sporadic here and there. Then Atlanta, I've spoken to a couple of my girlfriends who are there. It's not bad. My sister, That's and I got my husband in Florida is not even that bad. So it's like, I don't know what it is about Detroit. Wow. I hope it doesn't follow the same, same trend, but you know, seeing what's also happening in like Europe right now, everyone's yeah. kind of saying like, no, no, the U S is next. I mean, clearly Detroit's already been hit, but it's definitely something that is worrisome and we're going to learn more over the next several weeks. Right. Like it's, I think it's only the beginning of this. What would we say? The third wave? <laughs> Apparently they're calling it the fourth. They're calling it the fourth wave. Oh, yeah. okay. Honestly, I don't remember where the third happened, but <laughs> yeah. oh. <laughs> I was going to say, when was I'm the third you. wave? <laughs> uh, it's hard to keep track anymore. But in the end, the point is that, you know, COVID is still very much with us and we need to keep taking precautions. We need Absolutely. to get everyone vaccinated. We heard good news, great news actually today about the Pfizer vaccine yes. uh, trials in 12 to 15 year olds. So that was fantastic news. Huge news. Yeah, very much so. But anyways, for me, I would say so my my highs and lows were more like an individual level. So my low has more to do with uh, I'm doing my master's in public health right now. So it's just like crazy hectic right now in terms of like the amount of work because I'm trying to finish it by December. So this time right now is especially busy because I'm also doing my practicum and my practicum is actually about COVID and maternal and neonatal outcomes, which is very interesting. But at the same time, it's just a lot to be doing plus working full-time and you know raising a family so it's just a lot right now so you're like the woman (laughs) (laughs) I could say the same about you girl you do everything it's amazing (laughs) but my high has actually been you know I've actually taken and maybe you've noticed but I've taken a little bit of a social media break and for me it's been like actually really nice and it was just because you know I had so much on my plate that I needed to take a step back and so it's been really it's been helpful for me so but I'll be back soon (laughs) social media misses you oh thank you so we kind of briefly talked about what you do but I would love for you to give like a formal introduction about yourself just a little bit of background for our listeners yeah absolutely so my name is Nina Chandrasekharan I am board certified internal medicine, pulmonary critical care, second year fellow, almost a third year. Can't wait. Um, I am Indian. I am in a long distance marriage. My husband is in Florida. He's an internal medicine doctor. We've been doing long distance for a while, so it's been a little rough, but I would have to say this time around, it's been a lot better because he makes an effort to come every other week. I have a passion for fashion. I like to have fun. I like to travel. I like to do all the good things as long as, you know, it's safe with a dose of being safe. Yeah, definitely. If you don't follow her on Instagram, she is one to follow because she's amazing. And she is like the epitome of what I look at as like this work life balance and living your life to the fullest. So definitely check her out if you aren't already because she's awesome. Yes, yes, that's a perfect mantra for you. And I think it's a great one to have. Can you share a little bit about your medical education background? Yeah, so I did my undergrad in Nova, and I, that's actually where my husband did his too. And then I went to an American University of Antigua for my medical school. So two years on the island with your basic sciences, and then you do your rotations. Thankfully, at that point, AUA had a like a combined program with FIU, Florida International University in Miami. And since I am from Miami, that was actually perfect. So I did my third year, my whole third year, um, the major clinical rotations or basic ones, I forgot what those are called, 
But anyway, the core ones. Core rotation. The core ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a little oh, while ago. <laughs> I know. <laughs> the core ones in Miami. And then my fourth year, I did half of it in um, New York. And the other half, I did electives actually in Miami. Oh, that's amazing. I'm so glad that you got the chance to be back home and then you got to travel a bit. So that's cool. So just sharing with the listeners, I also went to the same medical school <laughs> as Nina did, but a little different time frame. And I actually went to the twinning program that was based in India. So my first two years were there and then I was doing rotations in the United States as well. So I just thought it was such a small world when we met through Instagram and we both happened to be from the same medical school. So yay, AUA. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to ask you because I was curious, you know, what made you decide to pursue medicine? And can you just share a little bit about your personal medical journey? Yeah, so I would say that I had a huge influence from my mom. She is a family physician, and she's just so great at what she does. At growing up, she was really loved by the community and just anybody that would see her. And just she fostered an environment to me and my, to my sister and I, who was actually a family physician as well. And it was one that you give your whole self to a patient, no matter what you do and where you are. Even if she's in the middle of a crisis, she still had time to pick up a phone call. She was never like would charge, but she would always be on call if that made sense. To her patients, she really cared about them and loved them. And you could tell from their interactions. And that was just something that really stood out to me growing up. And that was kind of the basis of what why my sister and I wanted to pursue it. We all, all the patients would just kind of walk to us, whether we were in temple or they were in a grocery store, X, Y, Z. And they would be like, your mom, this, did that save me. And oh my gosh. She sounds like a really great role model. That's amazing. Yeah. Where is she? Is she in Florida? Is she practicing in yeah. Florida? Yeah. She's actually is one of the last solo practitioners. Wow. Oh my gosh. Amazing. So she's private, like completely private yeah. practice. Completely. Wow. 1998. That's amazing. Crazy. Yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, um, going to a Caribbean medical school. You and I both went to one. And I just wanted to know, like, why did you choose a Caribbean medical school? Yeah, I get asked that a lot. I would say when I was in Nova um, in my undergrad, I, I was wanted to do, obviously, I knew I wanted to do medicine. And then the paths that were laid out for me pretty much were DO and MD at that time. And Caribbean was kind of looked at at a kind of negative tone still at that point and the views of like aunties uncles uh but then my cousin actually went so she kind of set the stage where it was like okay to go and i think that was the driving factor because i took the mcat i didn't do so well my gpa was mediocre i just felt i was like a mediocre candidate there was nothing really that kind of stood out in my application and the fact that my mcat score wasn't the best that it could be I didn't want to take it again. I was so reluctant to because I did it and I didn't do as well as I had wanted. And that kind of really just killed my ego and killed me. And I was like, I don't want to take it again. And I was so adamant. So my mom's like, well, if you don't, you're going to go to Caribbean. And I'm like, okay, send me to Caribbean. Sign me up. <laughs> I always tell everyone, if I had to do it again, I would choose the same exact route. I had a blast on the island. It really taught me how to study. I made some of the best friends I could have ever made. It was such a different experience than what everyone had here. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I would end up exactly where I wanted to end up. And I love that you have that perspective because I have a very similar perspective as you do when it comes to a Caribbean medical school. So, I mean, I'm just curious in terms of you, you went to Antigua for the first two years. And then when you came back to the United States, you did your rotations. So what was it like doing the rotations? How was that? How was that experience? With FIU, it was, um, it was a different experience because 
sometimes we would kind of feel a little bit like outsiders, if that made sense in some of the rotations, like surgery mm-hmm. and OB. Surgery and OB, I would say would probably the most, but um, I am FM. I, I just distinctly remember the two where we definitely felt a little out of place. And that was because we were with the FIU students and like you're, you're with um, American students and they kind of, I guess, view you as being like, okay, well, this is my you're like, well, oh. it's my food. <laughs> like, yeah. But then they yeah. would kind of get like first dibs, like the resident would be like, oh, because they've already worked with them and they will work with them again. They will match mm-hmm. them. Like things like that. So there was still a little bit, and I was the first class to ever do it. It's yeah. That. So you were you were establishing things essentially. Yeah. 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 So like, we would wait around for surgeries and sometimes not even get it. And we would sit there from like, you know, you have to be there at 5 a.m. and do your rounds. So we would do the rounds with them, but then to actually operate, we'd have to kind of like wait. Okay. Got it. It was just that they were, they were prioritized. It sounds like yeah. FIU students. Okay. And then I think, so the other cores are psychiatry and pediatrics. So <laughs> were the experiences on those rotations good as well? Actually great. To the point where almost, I wanted to almost do peds. I love yeah. these rotation. That was because they put us in clinic mm-hmm. um, and the clinics were only two were clinic. So we had great rotation. Psych too. Psych was probably really amazing. Honestly, I had a great psych experience. Wow. That's awesome. I did my, I actually started on psych. And so when I came back to the U S like I use that as an opportunity to travel. So I like hit different cities. So I like lived in New York city. I was in DC, Baltimore, Chicago. I actually went to San Juan, Puerto Rico at one point too. And I did my ob rotation there, but like, I just, yeah, but like for me, it was like, I wanted to use the time to travel and also check yeah. out different hospital settings too. Like, um, you know, I, I worked in just different environments, which I, I really enjoyed. And yeah, psych I did in DC and it was a very interesting experience. It was actually a full psych hospital. So it was a little oh, wow. bit, yeah, yeah. So it was actually kind of intense. Like there was like security getting in and out. It was very interesting. Like, <laughs> that's yeah. really cool. Especially to be able to say that. Yeah, I like that you went to um, different places for your rotations. And that was actually what made me rank. So I, I did my internal medicine at University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, so UPMC. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I ranked that number one. And my husband and my family were kind of like, at that time, oh, he was only my boyfriend, but still they're kind of like, so you don't want to be in Florida? You want to be in Florida? The uh, medical education between the South and the North is vastly different. I never went that far south. Like my, the furthest I went, I think was DC, like Baltimore area. So I didn't go further south, but that's interesting. Like in what sense would you say, are there like certain characteristics or things you would say that seemed very different? Yeah. I I remember to this day, so I did an ICU rotation in New York. I did one in Orlando and I did one in um, Georgia. I just loved ICU as a fourth year med student. I was like, this is it. Yeah. I just was so obsessed because I just love the way that you connect, you control like every head to toe, you know, right. neuro, XYZ, respiratory. And if you don't like what the consultant's saying, you you do your own thing, right? Because you're like, yeah. I think that's just so cool. So I was obsessed with that. So I would just try to do as many IC rotations as I can so I could be good enough and like residency. I really wanted to stand out. That was my goal. So then I noticed in New York, they were just way more innovative in that if you just read an article, like let's say the codex trial that came out, um, dexamethasone, the 20 milligrams instead of the recovery trial mm-hmm. for um, COVID. So if I brought that up and, and showed my reasoning as to why, they would be like, absolutely, let's do it. Let's try it. I tried that once in Orlando. And then they like looked at me and they're like, no, we're going to stick to protocol. Like this is- Oh, interesting. They're, they're okay. very, very like by the book in yeah. Florida. Yeah. 
Cause that's what they know. They're not really right. used to. And I think a lot of it has to do, cause I spoke to a lot of people about this. I, my mom even said that that's true. It has to do with um, malpractice. Malpractice is big in Florida. Yeah. Huge. And you pay a lot. So mm-hmm. that's what happens down South. You pay more. So they don't want to veer off the path because then you get, you can get sued higher risk for liability. Yeah, absolutely. No, that makes sense. I appreciate you sharing that insight. And that, yeah. that's that's how you learn, right? Like how yeah, different exactly. systems work, like different healthcare. I mean, it's not all standardized, right? Yeah. So, so I wanted to go back to, you mentioned how you did three electives in ICU. So, <laughs> so I did not like that, but I did it. Cause I went out of my way to like, you, you get to do, um, you have to find your own rotations as a fourth year. Mm, that's how yeah. that happened. I was always talking to my coordinator. She had her like speed dial. I'm like, what do we need to do? It's so funny you say that. I literally was always trying to talk to our coordinator too. Like every morning there was a time I knew she'd be at her desk and I would call her literally every morning. <laughs> I don't know if this is just an international, like a, like an IMD thing, or if this is like any <laughs> medical student thing. Well, that's so funny that you said you'd do that. Oh my God. Cause I thought it was just me being just like crazy, but I was like, I need to line this rotation up and yeah. blah, blah, you know, like you're, you have to be on it, you know, oh, like, for, like that's one thing I will say, at least with, I mean, maybe it was just the time we were in med school and what we had to go through. I don't know if it's like that at all right now. I don't know if you know anyone that's at AUA right now, but basically like you did have to really like work to get your rotations lined up. And so that, that is, that is a difficult part of what I think we went through, but that being said, like we both did it. It is doable. Right. And you were able to set up these three electives in ICU, which is what you wanted to do. And I think that's fantastic. So I did want to ask you, like you were in med school applying to residency. Can you share, you know, tips for students out there that might be currently that are either in med school and like looking to apply in the next cycle, for example, any tips or advice that you may have for med students out there? Yeah, uh, research. I did. Um, I found like a resident when I was in my IM rotation. I found a cool case. Residents are very overwhelmed with like work and they don't have the time to write up a case. So if you offer yourself as a student to like write it up and, you know, just add their name on it, they're totally fine with it. Find a case, find a cool resident and just kind of like stick with them. Plus, if you make friends with the residents, they will talk you up because they want you there at least the next year, you know, you're friends with them. So that, I think that that's big and I've seen that and I've seen it work and I've, I've personally had it work. I think that that's great. I think finding a mentor, try to find a mentor early on and really stick to them. I think that's huge. And it's, it's not easy to do because mm-hmm. you're like, Oh my God, they're so busy. They probably don't want to talk to me, but mm-hmm. you push through and you keep being annoying. They, they will. <laughs> Did you feel like you had the support you needed when you were going through med school? I think through the FIU program, yes, because they're very good at them. Um, they were very good at transitioning you to your next rotation, giving you all the packets that we had like teaching sessions every other day in this classroom. I think that in the FIU program, but then afterwards, you're, it's kind of free for all, you know, AUA just gives you a schedule, whatever um, rotations you need or you can do and then yeah. figure it out from there. Yeah. I'm glad you had that, you know, the core rotations were really lined up for you. For me, so I was... So I, I guess I'm a few, I mean, I don't know exactly timeline wise, but I'm a few years ahead of you and we didn't have that in our yeah. third year. So we were actually, so, I mean, a lot of students, it was just e- easier to stay in one place. So they were like either in New York city or Chicago, cause there were so many options available. So a lot of students just stayed there and then they got to know the local coordinator and yeah. then that's how they set things up. But 
for me, I was like, I want to check out different hospitals too. So I, I probably also did it a bit to myself <laughs> where I'm like contacting the AUA coordinator all the time and trying to figure it out. But again, I mean, it, it, it can work in your favor, but that research tip is actually great. I, I never heard that one. So I appreciate you sharing that because, you know, it's then, you know, in that sense, it's, it can be pretty easy to write up a case report and that's oh, yeah. great. It's going to look fantastic. So, and I know a lot of students, um, are struggling to find research for whatever reason people are busy and whatnot so I think that's a great that's definitely helpful what about like um, and I know how much time do you really have in med school but do you have any suggestions on like extracurricular activities or anything like that that um, students in med school should do or consider I think now with social media there's so much that can be done I see meds I remember when COVID time we had um, the students here at Wayne State and University of Michigan they offered to like get groceries for us. They offered to babysit kids. This was like a big thing. New York had it too. I forgot what it was called, but um, they they were just, they're so innovative these yeah. days. They, yeah. they really took it upon themselves to be like, okay, well, we can't go to the hospital. We really can't do anything. Everything's on pause. Right. Let's help the doctors out that are actually like, and I just think that that's incredible. And also all of them creating these virtual um, shadowing things. Oh my gosh, yeah. That's huge on application because yeah. you have like 10,000 people who are doing it and you're making a name for yourself by showing you're a leader. I think that that does also make it a little competitive though, because if you're not the one doing it, then you're like, oof, now what am I going to do? But right. there's so many opportunities, even if it's just connecting with one of us, honestly, on Instagram, like yeah. um, one of the med students actually emailed me because she heard one of my uh, web shadowers or something. Mm-hmm. I forgot one of those things that I did and she had me, she interviewed me. And like yeah. wrote about one of her, yeah, case things. It was, it was crazy. Aww. And I told her one of a, an interesting case I had and like, I kind of gave her the details about it and she was able to write it up. I was like, okay. That's amazing. Yeah, I feel like kids these days are so, well, I just aged myself a lot, but like, <laughs> they're really like innovative, you know? Yeah. Like, I feel like if this was me back, back in the day, like, would I have been so creative and come up with all these amazing things? But I think, yeah, there are definitely a lot of like virtual type activities that can be done because a lot of things right now, everyone's like, well, how can I do this? Or how can I do that during the pandemic? But there are a lot of virtual things. And then even in-person things, like you were saying, like ways you can help. So I think these are great things that people can do. And I think it will look great on applications, honestly, especially at this time, like definitely things to think about. Now, do you have any advice on how many programs an IMG should apply to when it comes to residency? I would say like 50 at least. Yeah. I, I feel like I get asked this a lot, like actually quantifying numbers because people don't understand like how many you need to necessarily apply to even get interviews. I'll be honest. I applied to like 200 because we were couples matching. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So we were trying to couples match. So we were nervous about that. I'm sorry. You said you applied to 120, 120. Yeah. I mean, you just have to, you just have to, you know, unfortunately it, it is money. It does cost money to apply to all these programs, but you know, it, this is your chance to do it. So you, you got to like make it count. I think in the end I had, I got like 25 interviews. I don't, mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember <laughs> exactly. I didn't go to all, I didn't accept all of them, yeah. but, but I mean, I accepted enough where I felt comfortable because right. we were so worried that, you know, we won't match if we're going to do couples, both being IMGs. So where did you, where did you guys end up going? 
we ended up going to Columbus. So we were in Columbus, Ohio. So I trained at Mount Carmel Health System and he trained at a neighboring program, both family medicine, but different programs, which was actually like the best of both worlds because we didn't have to be at the same hospital and like train in the same program, but at the same time, like we got to be in the same city. It was nice because, you know, we were just very thankful that we ended up in the same city. We'd been long distance too. I, I don't think I've ever told you that, but we were long oh, really? distance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we met in Chicago, but I remember I told you I was traveling a lot for rotations. You know, you make it work. So it, it worked out for us. So we didn't actually, we had some rotations in the same city at one point, but like really it wasn't until residency that we ended up in the same place. Oh. So, so I know, I, I know to a certain extent what that's like. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny though because I, I you know me and you and IMGs we apply to so many my husband applied to seven programs really like, yeah and count them on my hands seven and my he only gosh. applied to seven because I made him he was only gonna do five <laughs> <laughs> crazy oh yeah it, it is it is un, you know unfortunately there is a difference and that's just something that's the reality of the situation which is so funny because we always have a doctor's shortage right? (laughs) So we need you guys. We need you guys. Um, But anyways, I want to talk more about also your fellowship. So when did you apply into fellowship? Is it typically second? Because I didn't do fellowship. So between second and third year is probably when you apply, correct? And, And so what made you, I mean, you mentioned ICU kind of like I've actually, you already answered this question. I was going to ask you, what made you choose to specialize in pulmonary and critical care medicine? I started, so definitely ICU, but the, my love for it in core rotations, my internal medicine, there was a code that was called mm-hmm. um, and it was like a code blue and everyone was running and I was like, oh, let me run because FOMO. So <laughs> I ran <laughs> and then all these people were like doing compressions, but then it was an ICU doctor who was like leading the code. He was like, epi, like compressions, time is it? And I was like, oh, yeah. you're so cool. And, uh, I want to be like him. So then uh, I did, I was like, I, whatever he's doing, I want to do. And they told me it was the ICU doctor. So then I was like, ICU, I need this. And I did my first one and I just really loved it. That's amazing. But, yeah. So being Palm Crit, do you have any tips for med students or residents that are interested in pursuing it? I, it's getting a way more competitive after COVID. Really? You, yeah. yeah. So my hospital usually gets like 500 applications for the six spots. But this year it was up to 800 and we wow. could only do like 70. So it was so competitive and it was sad. Wow. And a lot of good people that I know didn't match. A lot oh my goodness. Match. And it's because it's, there's not many spots to begin with. I mean, it's, it's Palm Crit. There's oh not many God. spots. And the, we're one of the biggest programs. There were only six people. Wow. I, I would say do research, do something to make yourself stand out. Do get a lot of ICU experience. Once again, mentors can help because if you if you need an interview somewhere, they will call for you, and oh, that's wow. the big yeah. fellowship that I didn't even know until I was applying. My mentor was like, "Oh, do you want me to call for you?" And I'm like, "Call who?" <laughs> <And she was laughs> the program director. I'm like, people do that. And so then your mentor like, called. Yeah, yeah. They, my mentor he he didn't end up call. He did call. He called for a couple places that in Florida that I was wanted to interview at at um, UM that he knew some dude he called. But um, I mean, I ranked that, but I didn't end up getting it. Yeah. So that's one big thing I didn't know. And I think uh, residents should know that. I think that they should know if you get good, but you need to get in early. So start early. I'm really big, like really big believer in starting early. A lot of, some people are like, oh, you know, you don't need to know what you want to do and do your intern year or something. But by the time intern year is done, you've already lost a year of a paper that you could have been writing. A paper takes at least a year. 
if not longer. So then you're gonna you're gonna miss out on a lot of like focused um, case reports you can have or focused case reviews or meta analysis, getting close to a certain specialty rather than everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's just my view because a lot of people are like, oh, you know, I'll do engineer and figure it out. I'll do engineer and figure it out, which is great too. I mean, if you have the luxury to do that, but if you're going to a competitive field, it's it's good to know early. And that's why people right. want to things like chief year, like a gap year or something because they need that time to do the research. So yeah, I would yeah. say in med school, kind of try to see what you like, do electives and everything. Yeah, definitely makes sense. And, you know, if you find something in med school, then definitely like you did, do more electives in that, you know, that way it really shows your interest level too. What are your future plans or what are you kind of thinking about? I know you still have another year <laughs> of your fellowship to decide and everything too, but have you kind of thought about what you want to do? Yeah, it's in Palm Crit, there's, I guess almost every specialty has this. You can, um, if you want to do further specialty, you have to apply also. So I, sh- if I wanted to do a third fellowship, I would have, I would be applying this year. But my husband said, if I do a third fellowship, he's going to take back that in. <laughs> you're so funny oh my god but that's interesting so what fellowships are there after palm crit like what do you do after that i actually just learned this while i went into palm crit so there's pulmonary hypertension which is one year there's um that i was actually going to do but then covid hit and i was like i can't do it there's lung transplant there is interstitial lung disease interstitial slash pleural diseases there's ecmo that's crazy. And then um, now there apparently there's a cardiac arrest, post cardiac arrest. So there are a lot of fellowships out there. I had no idea. Like yeah. further specializing into palm crit. That's amazing. Wow. Okay. So, <laughs> so you're not gonna go further and specialize. Then it sounds like. <laughs> no. So you, yeah. so you think you're gonna start practicing? Yeah, I'll probably. I think I'm gonna sign a critical care contract for a year, one week on, one week off, and then my weeks off, I'm gonna build up private pulmonary or oh it. that's exciting you you have your your life figured out I love it <laughs> I try we'll see you know what they say women has a plan God laughs so we'll see <laughs> well I wish you all the best I think that sounds amazing <laughs> <laughs> for sure is Florida my husband's like it is Florida graduate like that evening we have a flight out <laughs> you're probably also feeling done with the Midwest I can say that because I'm from Michigan <laughs> <laughs> the weather the snow yeah the cold really does get to you but I really like Detroit yeah yeah you you I feel like you've really lived it up there too you actually seeing your stories and stuff I remember I was messaging like what restaurant is that because I've never been (laughs) so I I I, um lived in Detroit for many years that's why I was like oh my gosh what was this thank you so much you have to come back I know I will have to make a trip when it's things are a little bit better (laughs) for sure so I definitely agree with you So I know you're like, you're more than halfway done now with your training. And so if we switched perspectives, I'm just want to, I'm just curious, like, how do you think residency programs and fellowship programs could better support their trainees? Have there been things that the programs have done well? Are there things you think that, you know, programs could improve upon? Yeah, I think that research time is lacking in a lot of it. And especially residency, they don't give you dedicated like month of research or something. You have to do that on top of your clinical work, your school, your studying, your boards, your rounds, all of this. I think that there could be more guidance into different fellowships. And oh, this is one thing that is huge. And I even told my PD this today or yesterday. I think all fellowships and all residencies don't train anyone well for the real world. You get out in the real world and they're like, bill for level four, yep. bill for level five. And I'm like, well, what's the difference? How do I tell? 
And right. you don't, you don't know what you're doing, then you overbill or you underbill and Medicare looks at you like what? So I don't think that they do a good job of that at all. We don't know what codes to use. I think that's something that can be improved all over. Plus, I didn't know that there was a difference between academic versus private. They don't teach you that yet until your third year. They're like, oh, you don't need to worry about that. You don't need to worry about that. Just do our Scott work. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's the thing that Scott work really gets you. And I feel like it just takes up so much of your time. And then like you don't worry. Almost like they make yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think in training, it's it's really known as practice improvement correct me if I'm wrong or if you recall if that's the terminology but for coding and stuff they're supposed they're like ACGME requires you to have some I don't know some like didactics or something in practice improvement is what what they call it I believe so from what I remember at least but I remember like our training in that was not good either so yeah. in terms of like teaching yeah. you how to bill and stuff like I, I felt just confused by it so yeah I definitely agree with you I I 100% agree that they don't, residencies just don't do a good job of training for the real world. And um, it's something that's should. definitely needed. Yeah, they should. And I, I, even I, I brought it up to my program. So we're making a workshop from the attendings, whoever wants to attend can, how to be an attending or the transition from fellowship to attending. It'll be for anyone, even first years who want to do it. We're letting them do it because at first my PD was like, let's just make it third years. So I'm like, no, let's make it everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's important at all levels. And do yeah. it every year, so then you remember it. You just do it once to me, and you tell me the level four and level five. Like you need, you need to say bow sound. Like okay, I'll forget it tomorrow. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, you want to kind of like ingrain it, right? So you have to yeah. keep like bringing it up. Repetition is good. So, um, you know, in residency, you're, you're talking about all these exams and stuff, and obviously there's no dedicated time to study for any of those either. <laughs> so obviously, in residency, you're taking USMLE Step Three. So you've already taken step one and now they've gotten rid of step two CS, but there's still step two CK. Do yeah. you have any advice or like tips and how to prepare for any of these standardized exams? I would say one thing that helped me is I would have little note cards of things all over, like equations and stuff. And I'm sorry to do that for my pulmonary board, like the DLCO equation, the AA gradient, all this stuff, just little note cards of things like all over sensitivity, specificity, PPV, NPV, negative, all that stuff. I would have the equations like in my bathroom, it would be on like a notepad and uh, stuck up. And then here I would have like a bunch of notes all over. So I'll just keep looking at them because repetition is key. Like that we were just talking about, just kind of yeah. looking at it over and over and starting early. I know it's so hard to, even now I do like one question. I'm like, ah, yes, <laughs> let me watch a show. Yeah, it's so hard because you're like so on all day or all night, depending on what you're doing, right? And then it's like to come home, you just want to turn your brain off. But you're right, like starting earlier is probably a better idea. Because if you start earlier, then you can dedicate little amounts of time, like each day or whatever, right? And over time, it will add up as opposed to cramming last minute, unless you're like a brilliant test taker, which... Honestly, how many people are? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not. Like, I need I need my time to study. Yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, I, I think, and it's so funny you talk about the whole, like, post-its and notes thing. That's exactly how my husband used to study for steps, too. 
is like there'll be like walls of like colored <laughs> post-its so that's so funny yeah but I mean it's a great it's a great way to study and really like you said and like we said like repetition really is key so so you've already kind of talked about this a little bit but you know you really are on the front lines you have been on the front lines so can you share a bit more kind of about your experience over the past year how it's been different than pre-pandemic for you because you had already started fellowship before the pandemic hit right so so you have some experience in this field before the pandemic even started so how did things change and obviously you've already shared this with me but how are things now things definitely changed they took a turn before it was just the cases we would get now it's just all covid like before we get you know your normal septic shock dq ulcers um, pneumonias, bacterial pneumonia, ventilator associated pneumonia, um, cardiogenic shock. We'd get, we just get normal stuff that we were able to do things with. That was cool. Like if it was cardiogenic shock versus septic shock, you get to float a swan. Um, even intubating, they wouldn't let us intubate. They would only anesthesia because they're the papers and like come in and stuff. So we, and then Bronx, you're never, you can never, that's the worst aerosolizing procedure ever. So yeah. it, it killed our numbers. Honestly, I just, I know some interventional cardiology. I know some GI people who had to graduate a month later and it was because there were numbers right up. and even my fellows who were doing um e-buses endobronchial ultrasounds and bronx they couldn't get their numbers wow so then if you don't get your numbers you're not getting proper training so like that's part that's supposed to be part of our protocol but then again what can the hospital do right Right? we're in a pandemic everything is closed yeah yeah so it 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 does suck it's changed medical it's changed education i think it changed our fellowship program because of things like that and also, I really think it changed medical education. Like, mm-hmm. la- I, it, these med students are learning through a screen. Yeah. So much, I had a med student who was following me who did his, like, or who did their whatever rotation on, like, the screen. And um, then they came into the clinic. And then I was like, okay, well, you know, you do this physical exam. Tell me what you hear. Very clear S3. Like, very clear S3 with a huge, one of the biggest bulging JVs I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I've seen some big bulging JVDs. And then I was like, so what do you see? And then he, and then he just, the, the person just recited to me like S1, S2, normal. And I'm like, okay, anything else next? No thyromegaly. And I'm like, what, what else about the next? Like I had to like point it out to them. It's things like that. If you don't get the hands-on yeah. practice, you'll never see it. You won't know what asterisks is like when you put it up to do that. You're yeah. just going to lose physical exam skills. Yeah. I think, and then it will all become algorithm medicine. I've seen so much algorithm medicine these days. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so part of me is like, I'm happy for students that can, you know, that don't have to take CS, for example, now, but at the same time, that gave you the opportunity to do these exams on patients, right? It's not the same thing. But yeah, it forces you. It's not the same thing as a real patient. I understand that. But at the same time, it's still like, created a scenario where you're doing and you're having some hands-on experience. So like I get right now with the pandemic that it's, it's gone, but it's actually gone for good, right? Like they're not bringing this exam back. So, I mean, I see the pros and I see the cons of it. And I think this is one of them, like you said, is you're lacking or missing out on this hands-on experience. So that's true. And I don't know how or what that's going to mean for the, you know, for the current, uh, current students that are, you know, in med school and things like that. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see. So you mentioned all these things like cardiogenic shock and everything. Where did all that go? <laughs> yeah, I think it's starting to come back slowly, but then COVID hit. I think COVID just took over everything. They were saying that there were reported cases of MIs patients just dying in their homes. They were and that's, yeah. Hot. 
Yeah, that's what I, I'm just, you know, when I'm hearing what you're saying, this is what I've heard too, is like, and we see this, right? We're not seeing as many MIs, for example, like you said, or I think strokes and things like that, but it's like, so everyone's just staying home. So, you know, we're missing all these other things that are potentially happening and the only things showing up are COVID. So, you know, it's affecting us in many, many ways that we may not even be thinking about, right? Yeah. There were a lot of articles talking about delayed like screening. Now people have missed their colonoscopies. They've missed like X, they've missed Y, Z. It's going to be hard to pick up. And if this is another surge, then we're all screwed. But hopefully it's just mini surges. That's just what I'm going to keep saying in my mind. Wishful thinking. Let's stay optimistic about this. No, I agree with you. I know it's, it's tough. And yeah, a lot of people are missing screenings. And I'll be honest, I feel like being in healthcare, healthcare, like we, we also told people to hold off. You know, we, we, we told people to stay home and then over time, the messaging did change. So like, I will say that I think we also kind of play, played into that. So, so now trying to convince people to come back in and like get them caught up on their procedures and all this stuff. Like, but like you said, I hope this really is a mini wave. I hope it's not like a huge surge. So we'll just hope and pray for the best. Right. So what do you think that you've learned from this pandemic? Life is short. Don't take things for granted, really. Mm-hmm. And we were really unhygienic before. Oh, yeah. I wonder in the future, post-pandemic, whenever that will be, I wonder how things will or will not change. Like if someone has a cold or the flu and they walk out in public, are they going to wear a mask or not? You know, because we know that flu was way down this year. Yeah. I don't even think and it's we, a flu case, yeah. I, I saw zero flu cases in the clinic. Yeah which is very different from last year. And we know why that is, right? People are wearing masks and social distancing, staying home. Like this is what, you know, helped in this scenario. But like, I just wonder post pandemic, are people going to be like, you know, maybe these are things that we should just be doing generally speaking, right? So we'll be curious, we'll see what happens, but it'll be interesting. So what changes have been made in your healthcare system since the start of the pandemic? Anything that really stood out in terms of like, changing how things are done, protocols that may be around for much longer, even post-pandemic, things you think they're doing better. I think telehealth will definitely be around. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great tool. I like it. I'll use in the VA with my like veterans who can't come through. Mm -hmm. I think great tool. Um, I, that was something that needed to be had. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was probably a positive. Other things in healthcare that's changed. I think pulmonary, I'll always stay in business. (laughs) I'll always stay in business. Yeah, that is true. You definitely will. And that's what I was curious too, is, you know, you see patients in the hospital, but also outpatient. So in terms of like post-COVID home complications, things like that, like what would you often see in terms of follow-up? And was it like certain, you know, age groups or certain risk factors that someone had that you feel um, led them to be more likely to have post-COVID pulmonary complications? I think if you had underlying fibrosis, pulmonary fibrosis, like IPF, uh, mm-hmm. you, you're going to do worse. That's yeah. something that's very obvious because you don't have any room to breathe already. Right. It's already fibrosis. Then where, are you, where else are you going to go? Mm-hmm. I think that that affected ventilation oxygenation significantly. And those patients had a poor outcome. But um, anybody that, that had obesity, we saw the worst with patients with obesity. Mm-hmm. They were so hard to oxygenate and ventilate. That had the worst outcomes. And I think um, post, post-COVID, we're seeing uh, reactive airway disease, bronchiolitis obliterans, which is like um, inflammation of the smaller airways. We're seeing 
fibrosis in patients who didn't have fibrosis before. We're seeing pleural effusions. We're seeing um, pneumonitis, continued just inflammation, ground glass opacities that just haven't resolved. So that we're putting them on like longer courses of steroids. But then the longer we put them on steroids, that's, you know, it's immunocompromised. Right. They get osteopenia, they get osteoporosis, they get glaucoma, they get high white cell, diabetes has to be taken care of. Like it's, it gets put on Bactrim sometimes because they've been on for six weeks. So it's like, it's so complicating. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, you know, it's just stupid disease. But. Right, right. With all, and I think people forget that there's a high risk for morbidity too, right? Like we're focused so much on the death and mortality. And yes, that's important. But it's also important to realize, and I think that this is going to be the next big health care crisis, really is all these patients who are suffering from just all these complications post-COVID. And we're just talking pulmonary, right? Like there's other things that are happening, other symptoms that patients have, you know, and we're hearing, I don't know what studies or things you've seen so far, but I mean, I'm seeing uh, patients nine months out that have certain symptoms, lingering symptoms. I think the mental thing is the biggest thing for patients. Yeah, the... Yeah, that was really kind of odd to me, the brain fog. But yeah, that's been kind of the longest, like you said. What about in terms of pulmonary, though? Like, how long has kind of been the longest that you've seen someone so far been like struggling with certain pulmonary complications post COVID? Still struggling. Fibrosis. Yeah. Yeah, fibrosis end stage. So either you get a lung transplant, or um, you hope you're the rest of your lungs don't get fibrosis. Because yeah. we put them on um, antifibrotics, so like Imuran, Isothioprine cyclosporin, mm-hmm. but then those come with their own host of complications. There's so many with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's horrible. Fibrosis is a long-term one. I had a patient who had pneumonitis for like ever. We just had her on steroids and steroids and she's not getting better. So we actually referred her for transplant. Really? Yeah. Um, I do know, um, dang it, I forgot what, there's some hospital in Chicago that did, that did, um, the first double lung transplant for COVID. Yes. I actually heard about that. I'm forgetting which hospital it was too, but I know what you're talking about. Wasn't it a pretty young person too, who had yeah. the double lung transplant? They only, do, they only do young people, even ECMO now. We're not, our criteria, we're not doing it for anybody who's um, older than 60. Okay. Yeah. Because the yeah. morbidity is so high. No, but I'm saying this double lung transplant was someone who's like twenties, like in their twenties or thirties. Cause they, I don't know. They did vaping. The 20 Henry Ford did the vaping. Mm, okay. Yeah. 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 So, well, thank you so much. This was so much fun. I love that we got to do this and chat today. And I appreciate the, you know, everything that you've shared with us. Thank you so much. Of course. Of course. Thank you so much for having me on. It was an honor. All right, you guys, that was the episode. I truly hope you enjoyed this conversation that I had with Dr. Nina Chandrasekharan. She is such an amazing role model and truly is the epitome of kind of this work-life balance and living your life. So definitely someone you should check out on Instagram as well. Her Instagram handle is at NeensMD. Check her out. And, you know, if you guys have any suggestions for me for future episodes and topics you're interested in me speaking about, be sure to reach out to me on Instagram. Instagram at dr.avivarma and please follow our Instagram account at browngirlwhitecoatpod and as always thank you so much for making this podcast a part of your day wherever you are.